Good evening. So I preach the least out of our pastors here, but for some reason the Lord lands me on the most momentous occasions. I preach the last sermon at our previous building. I preach the first sermon here, and then I preach our first Sunday night sermon. So I'm definitely blessed to be here this evening with you all. I know probably some of you haven't seen me in a while because I haven't been able to make uh, Sunday services because of work, but hopefully you'll ruin that changes uh, in the near future. Um, but tonight I'll be preaching from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And the sermon title tonight is Eternal Life is Knowing God and Christ. So if you would, please turn with me to chapter John 17, 1 through 5. And if you can stand, please do so and we will read God's Word together. Um, but before I read this, I just want to say you know, what, what Pastor Steve said when he said about the sermon transforming your lives. Now, I, I think about that and probably thinks, wow, what, what, a, what a standard to set. But then I say, wait a minute, no. Praise God. He's the one that transforms our lives through his word. And that's what ultimately we all seek from him tonight. So let us read John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you have given me to do, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time to come together, to worship you, to give you all the praise, to hear from your word, Lord, to be guided by your spirit in this time. We pray, Lord, as Pastor Steve mentioned, that you would transform us, that what everybody hears is your truth, which Christ says in this prayer, to, to sanctify us by that. Your word is truth, and you sanctify us by your word. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, and may you sanctify us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So with Christmas having passed a few weeks back, the celebration of the birth of our Lord, it should still be on our minds. As we were driving here this evening, we saw people having lights up on their house still, just can't let it go, but hey, it's a reminder about Christ. He came for a reason. He came to earth on mission from the Father. He came for a specific hour, an hour of darkness, but also of glory. Our context this evening is what's called the, the high priestly prayer. This prayer comes on the heels of the Christian tradition refers to as the Last Supper. The Last Supper is where Jesus gives his farewell discourse, which we find in John chapter 13 through chapter 17, and he finishes it there. This is a special event. This is for the twelve, for Jesus' closest disciples, this one last meal with them before he is handed over to the Roman soldiers. The evening when we know of Judas betrays our beloved Jesus, and then he's crucified on the following day. So tonight, the central point of this passage is that eternal life is found only in God through Christ. Pretty simple. Now, interestingly, when I was studying for 
the sermon tonight, when we look at the structure of John 17, 1 through 5, there is a pattern of thought identifiable. Well, I saw it. I didn't see any commentaries, but I saw it, and I thought it was kind of interesting. But we call it a chiasm or a chiasm, and some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may have not. But a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in the reverse order. The result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in the passage. It's a very helpful way of identifying a key point the author wants us to see. And we'll look at this together, and I've, I've arranged the passages in this kind of form, and I'll explain it as I go through it. So again, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. And that's going to mirror verse 5. And then 2 mirrors verse 4, and then 3 is the center point of the passage. So on slide 5, here's the key point of, 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 of point A. The Son seeks glorification from the Father so he can glorify him. On the A at the bottom, with a little comma above it, or apostrophe, it's the same idea. The Son seeks to be glorified in the presence of his Father that he had before the world existed. So those two passages, they mirror each other. They, they point the idea back to the center of the text. And then in point B, which is verse 2, the Son has completed the Father's work of giving eternal life to everyone given to him. And what is in the B below that? The Son has glorified the Father in completing the work he was given. And then point C, the center of the text tonight. Eternal life is knowing the only true God and his Christ. So because those points mirror each other, I'm going to be preaching through verses 1 through 3 specifically, but I will give the interpretation on verses 4 and 5 within the sermon. So verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. As I said, this was the, the, the end of the farewell discourse that Jesus was giving to his disciples. In John 13, 1, in the beginning of it, John writes, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And that's what he read about right now. But what is this hour he's talking about? In this hour, we see glory and we see darkness transpire. In John 13, 31 to 32, Judas' departure initiates the hour of darkness, setting in motion Jesus' arrest, trial, execution, and the hour of his glorification in which God will glorify the Son at once, the text says. But many more things happen in this hour. Yes, in the hour, the Son of Man is to be glorified. But Scripture says that this hour is to also be a dominion of darkness. When the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and his disciples will scatter to their own homes, leaving Jesus all alone. And while his soul is troubled, Scripture says, because of the death he is to face, because of the cup that he is to drink, this is the purpose for which he came to this hour. For the Father to glorify his name in the judgment of the world when the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then Jesus concludes verse 1, as I've read, saying to the Father, glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. 
So how must the Father glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify the Father? In 17.4, Jesus says that he has glorified the Father on earth by completing the work the Father gave him to do. So what is this work the Father gave to his Son? In John 6.38-40, Jesus says, I have come from heaven to do the will of my Father, which is that he should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. He continues, For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we know that the last day isn't the death and resurrection of Christ. Rather, the event event marks the eschatological completion of God's plan of redemption, which in this sense, in one sense, is completed in Jesus' death, resurrection, and glorification as the first fruits, as Scripture talks about. But we need to look further into the work the Father gave the Son to complete. In John 17, 6, Jesus says he has revealed the Father's name to the people he gave him from the world. And in John 17, 11 through 12, Jesus tells the Father that he protected the ones he was given by your name that you have given me, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction. Therefore, we see that when Christ fulfilled the will of the Father from 638 through 40, and now that he has done this, glorifying the Father on earth and completing this work, Jesus asked that he be glorified by the Father. Now, when Jesus asks, when you look at it, he's not asking like, may you. It's actually an imperative. It's glory that belongs to him, the glory that he is due. But again, he is what? Taking on flesh, submitting himself to the will of the Father. Now, John gives us a clue as to the Son's glorification from the Father in John 12, verse 16 where he notes that the disciples did not understand the things Jesus was talking about from the Old Testament that he was fulfilling. John writes, When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. While Jesus says he has been glorified, I'm sorry, while Jesus says he has glorified the Father on earth in completing his work, he asked the Father to glorify him so that he may glorify the Father. So we have the Son glorifying the Father, then the Father glorifying the Son, and the Son glorifying the Father in the glorification of the Son. But we still have more to look at as to what this is. And verse 2 helps us get there. He says, Since you, again, this is the Son speaking to the Father, since you have given him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. See, this passage establishes the ground for the Son asking that the Father glorifies him because the Father gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone the Father has given him. But why does the Father have to give his Son, who is God, authority over all people? In the Gospels, we see Jesus constantly remark that a certain event is supposed to happen so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And the installation of the Messiah as Lord and King of the earth is the central theme of the Old Testament, which God's people were waiting for. 
We see it as decreed in Psalm 2, 6 through 12. Well, the psalmist writes, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. And the prophet Daniel spoke of the Messiah who would be given an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom that would never be destroyed. In the book of Daniel, verse, or chapter 7, verse 14, he writes, He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Christ is the fulfillment of Daniel's vision and has been given all things from the Father, all authority in heaven and on earth. The Christ came as promised as a descendant from David according to the flesh. And in his resurrection and exaltation, Paul writes, he was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness. And the son of God is at the right hand of the Father, and he will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And once he does that, he will then hand the kingdom back over to the Father, subjecting himself as proper and fitting for a man, okay, for an obedient man, to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. So the Father handing it over to the Son, the Son glorifying the Father in the work, and then handing it back to the Father so the Father can do what? Glorify the Son. The handing over the kingdom back to the Father marks the end of the incarnate Son's mediating messianic reign, the last Adam's final conclusive act of obedience. So looking back at John 17, verse 2, the Father's action of giving the Son Authority over all people is alone his divine right. The Old Testament scriptures, as we have observed, show that this is what I am, what Yahweh will do for his Messiah. And since the Son is in the flesh as man, this is why he says in John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I. And therefore the Son, as man, must be given authority from God the Father. But however, we, we must not think the Son and His divinity is somehow inferior to the Father and in submission to Him. Rather, we must see that His submission is a mode of His divine perfection, not a lack in it. God's purpose is to redeem humanity, which required perfect obedience by a human, by the God-man. Therefore, the Son must be fully man in every way, and that means asking the Father, for these things, for the Father to give authority over to the Son as man. And so therefore, in verse 2, the Father, as the cause 
and origin of all things, grants. The word is grants everyone to the Son, so the Son may give, may give eternal life to the everyone the Father has given to him. The Son then glorifies the Father by making the Father known to all he has given him. Augustine, commenting on this passage, writes, If then the Son glorifies you, speaking of the Father, in this way, as you have given him power over all flesh, and you have so given that he may give eternal life to all you have given him, and this is eternal life that they may know you, therefore the Son glorifies you in such a way that he may make you known to all whom you have given him. And what is the glorification of the Son that Jesus is speaking about? Well, we see this in Acts 2.33 and 13-15, where Peter says the Son has been exalted to the right hand of God, having glorified his servant Jesus and raising him from the dead. And Philippians 2.5-11 is, is the classic text on where we see the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son. I'm going to read it for you. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul writes, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And we had come, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, right? There's the Son, there's the Father glorifying the Son. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So it's the name given to Jesus, which is the name of the Father, which is Yahweh. So at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father through all those calling upon the name of the Son. The name God gave to the Son is the very name by which the Son protected the ones the Father gave to him, as we saw in John 17, 11 through 12 so that they may be one with the Son and the Father, as the Son and the Father are one. And I've already said this, but we should all know this. What is his name? It's Yahweh. It's I Am, the only true living God. And in raising up the Son from the dead, the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection reveals the glory of God in that the Son, existing in the form of God, took on flesh and humbled himself in his obedience to God to the point of death on a cross. So God raised him up. God exalted him. He gave him his name. And they are bowing and confessing God as Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. But here's another question. How does this bring glory to the Father? This is what we see. We see the Son as a servant carries out the Father's activity, not as a servant of someone else's activity, but as the wisdom and power of God the Father. 
What do we see throughout John's gospel and the other gospels? We see a man that nobody knew about for 30 years comes out of nowhere doing the works that only God can do so that the people would believe that he is from the Father. To the Father is glorified when one realizes from the Son's works who his Father is, and the Father glorifies the Son in return when one receives the Son because of the Father's works. John, or Jesus says in John 5, 22-23, he says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If one receives the one who was sent, then one receives not just the one sent, but the one who sent the one who was received. Pretty confusing, huh? <laughs> I liked it. As I can see the what's capitalized and all the emphases up here. But I'm going to say it again. If the one, speaking of like myself, if the one receives the one who was sent, then one receives not just the one sent, but the one who sent the one who was received. Got it. So in the Son's death and resurrection, God demonstrates the height of his omnipotence and not just coming back from death, but also destroying sin and death itself, revealing to the world what John tells us in his prologue. In verses 4 through 5, he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So what do we see? We see that the crucified Son simply is the glory of God. The crucified Son simply is the glory of God. In verse 3, John writes, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I open this sermon explaining that the key idea in these passages, or in the, in the text today, in the sermon today, is that eternal life is knowing God, which comes through knowing Christ. God's purpose to make himself known is in the person of Christ. It is not a mere human, a mere human who God adopted as his messenger. Rather, it is the mode of the existence that the word came, who we read in the beginning, was with God, and was God. And this one took on flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ, God reveals God. Knowing God only comes through knowing Christ. And that might sound redundant, but when you read the Gospel of John, it's the constant theme of the Gospel, of believing, of knowing God. That's the point. That's the point of what we do is we want to know God. In this passage, grammatically speaking, knowing the one, true God, and the one he has sent are what we call coordinating statements. The word they're coordinating statements, which means they are equal. The little word and in the middle determines that relationship. I had more to it, but Mindy told me to take it out. 
Again, when you, you can see that when you read it. They are equal statements. And the Son, what does the Son do? The Son defines eternal life in this manner to emphasize God's purpose and intention for everyone He has given to the Son. So what is eternal life? To have eternal life is by way of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Perfect knowledge of the only true God comes only by contemplation of the Son in the Spirit. I'm going to go through a handful of passages to support what I'm saying here. <clears throat> I need a water to drink. Oh, well. 1 John 5.11. John writes, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And then in 1 John 5.20, we read, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And notice how 1 John 5.11, if you have your Bibles open at John 17, but if you notice, 1 John 5.11 has a very similar structure to John 17.3. God has given us eternal life, which verse 3 says is to know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Christ Jesus. And 5.11 says eternal life is in his Son. And the Son, as we see in 1 John 5.20, has given us understanding, knowledge of the true one. Who is the true one? It is reserved for God only, as John 17.3 says. Then John, in 1 John 5.20, concludes stating that what this knowledge signifies. To be in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Now, this knowledge is not just a, a mental ascent to a higher understanding. Rather, it is an active, continual knowing of God through a relationship with Christ. And this knowing is believing and is the central theme to the Gospel of John. Now, when the Son says the Father is the one true God, is he excluding himself? When you look at that passage, you may think that. I know the Jehovah's Witnesses use that passage all the time to say, look, see, Jesus is saying the Father is the one true God. Jesus is not. But that's not the case. When the Son says the Father is the one true God, he is not excluding himself. In John 10, Jesus was speaking of the works of the Father that he was doing, and he said, If I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, doing the same works, and the Father is the only true God, then the Son has to be the only true God. But the Son is doing what? He's speaking as the incarnate service, sent on a mission to carry out the will and work of God. The goal of the mission, as we have seen here, was so that everyone the Father gave to the Son would know Him. But the only way to know the only true God is to know Christ. Now, while he doesn't mention the Spirit in these passages, 
Throughout John's Gospel and the other books of the Bible, the Spirit is revealed distinctly as a mode or person of the divine essence, who Jesus refers to as the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. John 15, 26. And Jesus says what? He says, The Father will send the Spirit in my name and will teach you all things. In 1425. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 9 through 11, he says, The Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, who gives life and raised Jesus from the dead, who lives in us. So what are we to conclude about Christ and the Spirit? Scripture says, God the Father raised Jesus. Scripture says, Jesus raised Jesus. The Spirit raised Jesus. Was this three different works by three divine beings? I can never say that right. Beings, not beings as little beings, beings. Three divine beings or one undivided divine work by three co-equal persons who share the one divine essence. Well, since we are monotheists, we believe in one God, we must what? We must affirm the latter statement. Now, what's important to remember when it comes to studying God's word is that to see what Scripture teaches, we need to look at the theology the texts teach, not merely the words of the text. Many, many get stuck and lead to thoughts of heresy and errant theology by doing that. They get caught up on words and don't look at what Scripture shows as a whole, what the theology that comes from the Bible as a whole is, and they have various, various views of God that are quite inaccurate. A few other passages from the New Testament and the Old Testament lend further support for this interpretation, which reveals that there are distinct persons in God. The Son exists, and therefore, he must have what? A father. (laughs) He's the Son. He's got to have a father. He must have a father, ontologically speaking. And the works that he does reveal what? That he is of the divine essence. That he is God. Only God can do these works. So therefore, he's connected to the Father. John 5.26, one of my favorite passages. It says, For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Now the mistake that many think is that they might think, oh, see, the Father who's always existed gave life in himself to the Son at some point. But that's not what it means. To have life in yourself is to what? To always have existed, to always have had life in yourself. So the Father has always had life in himself, and he gives that to the Son. What are the implications about the Son? There is no starting point. He, too, has life in himself. The one who has life in himself does what? He gives life to all things. He sustains all things without losing any of his life in himself. There is no end to his life. You can't give that to a creature. We have immortality, 
But the Son has life in himself as the Father has life in himself. 2 Corinthians 4.6, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Eternal life is is defined in John 17.3, is to know the only true God. What else does Scripture say about God? No one can see God and live. It's in Exodus 33.20. So one can only see God in the face of Jesus Christ, who has shined the glory of God into our hearts. Three more passages for you. Isaiah 42.8. The prophet writes, well, God speaking through the prophet, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In John 17, 22, Jesus says, I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. And two verses later, he says also, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. If God will not give his glory to any other but he gives it to Jesus, and he has given it to him before the world's foundation, what does that say about Jesus? Again, the text forced us to these conclusions. The, the text itself put us in a corner to say, okay, we see these things that belong to God alone, but now we are seeing them being attributed to a creature, a person, a spirit. But we know that God is not a creature, And that God is one. So what conclusions do we draw? If we think there's more than one God, then the Gospel of John, the writer of of the Gospel of John, is a heretic. The very first words he says are heresy. But because we believe that God's word is inspired, it's from him, it's for his people, it is clear in everything it teaches, and it's consistent in everything that it teaches. And God is what? God is one. As I said, I am, Yahweh, will not give his glory to another. But the Son says he has given to them, to us, the glory the Father gave to him, which he gave to the Son from before the foundation of the world. Again, there wasn't a point in time when the Father gave glory to his Son, which is why he says it was from before the foundation of the world. What Jesus is doing here, what the Son is doing in these passages, he's expressing a divine glory of love between the Father and the Son that has always existed. The Son is speaking in in temporal or creaturely language to express an eternal reality of the triune relationships. We determine this based on the other passages already discussed. So one last question of interest is why does the Son, in verse 3, in John 17, 3, why does the Son refer to himself as Jesus Christ in the third person? Again, that's what it says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. The passages before and after, he goes back to speaking of the Son, of the Son referring to himself. Then he says, Jesus Christ in the third person. 
It comes down to the purpose of the passage, the purpose of what John is saying, what, what Jesus is recording John saying. So his purpose and also Jesus' purpose is not to focus on making a distinction between Jesus Christ and the one true God. Rather, he's emphasizing, he's defining what eternal life is. Eternal life has two components to it, but they are actually the same thing, as I mentioned earlier. So eternal life, meaning there is no other way to eternal life, is what? Number one, to know you, God, the only true God, and number two, Jesus Christ, who he has sent. In order to have eternal life, one must know the Father and the Son. And church, if Jesus was just a mere creature, why would eternal life depend on knowing him? Think about that. In that eternal life statement, it's the one true God and Jesus Christ. They are equal in that statement. It is a mere creature, a prophet, an angelic being. Why would eternal life depend upon just a creature? As observed in the Gospels, the Son has appeared in the form of man, under the Father in heaven. Thus he, the Son, ascribes power, honor, and glory to his Father as man should, since to man he is the only true God. Do you see where I'm going with that? As the Father of Jesus Christ, he is the only true God in the context of John chapter 17. But this oneness of truth can only be found in the humbled, crucified Christ where the divine majesty displays itself. This man, this man, is God himself who reveals God himself, who by God himself is revealed as God himself. Can't take credit for that. That was Karl Barth. That's fascinating. God himself, who reveals God himself, who by God himself is revealed as God himself. In John 17, 5, the Son is expressing that he has completed his work by revealing the Father to those whom the Father gave to him, and therefore wants to be glorified as God in the presence of his Father, just as he had before the world was. My favorite theologian, John Calvin, commenting on this passage, writes, What he declares and desires is nothing that doesn't strictly belong to him, but only that he may appear in the flesh, such as he was before the creation of the world. Or, to speak more plainly, that the divine majesty, which he had always possessed, may now be illustriously displayed in the person of the mediator and in the human flesh with which he was clothed. The glory that the Son wants to have in the presence of his Father he wants to, his sheep to have as well. Toward the end of his prayer in John 17, 24, the son says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me 
because you love me before the world's foundation. The glory of divine love the Father has for the Son, the Son wants us to share in it. It doesn't get any better than that. And Jesus says that he will continue to make his Father's name known to them so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. So Jesus' purpose was to bring comfort to his disciples in his farewell discourse. Things were going to happen that they would not expect. So he told them ahead of time so that when they do happen, they would believe in him, the text says. They would believe in him, but also have peace because he has conquered the world and will return to bring his sheep home. While the twelve, the twelve strong that had been with Jesus for three years, while they appeared to be strong and devoted, reclining in his presence one last time with him, we know that one will betray Jesus and their strongest leader will deny his name and they all will scatter to their homes. But why was this so? So that the scriptures would be fulfilled and God would be glorified. How many of us have demonstrated strong faith, but then shrink away due to a fear of man, a fear of circumstances? Cowardice. Don't want to be the odd one out. How many of us have shrunk away because we see things going on in the world and it concerns us? It shakes us. We see things maybe getting worse and worse. We see it all over the place. But hear hear what Paul says to Timothy. In his second letter, Tim, chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, Paul says, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Where are these people? They're in the church. Yes, we see them in the world. But this is what's going to happen in the church. What does Jesus say that's to happen as well? Love will grow cold. When love grows cold, sin takes over. So why was Paul saying this to Timothy? Why did he tell him this? Well, he says to avoid these people. He also tells him so that he would look to Christ and his word and not abandon his ministry. Look to Christ. Look to his word. Later on in that same letter, Paul says, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. So what does that mean? Persecution will come. 
But in telling him what is to come, the fulfillment of these things demonstrate the Lord is providentially guiding everything. He's guiding Timothy. He's guiding all the sheep who belong to Christ. All the sheep will be what? Protected by his name. The Father has given him. He can because he has all authority on heaven and on earth. And therefore, Timothy and all of us should have nothing to fear. We have eternal life because we know the Father and the Son. Scripture says we are in the last days. And in these last days, darkness will sweep over the world and will even seep into the church. But this is all part of what? God's plan. He is in control of this. God controls the darkness. God controls the darkness. Take comfort in this. The Lord knows who are his. So, in seeing these things unfold, as he told his disciples, what should we do? Don't fear, but believe. If there are those here tonight that are <clears throat> first time hearing a sermon preached, first time hearing about Christ, or maybe you've been coming before and you hear this message and you hear the truth and it's speaking to you now, the reality is <clears throat> that Jesus is coming back for you in judgment. He's coming back for all those that deny him in judgment. So he calls on you to believe. He calls on you to repent of all the sins in your heart. If you really take inventory of your conscience, if you really think about your life as a whole, be real to yourself and think about the things that you have done, the things you have said, the thoughts that you have, the intentions of your hearts that were sinful, God knows those. He sees them. He sees them in everybody. There's no escaping from him. So trust in Christ. Trust that God will take away your sin by believing in his name. His name is power. There's that song, there's power in his name. I don't know the song, but that's, there's power in his name. The transforming work comes from the spirit of Christ who will cleanse your heart and your mind and you will be one with him as he is one with us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the glory that you have shown us the face of your son. We thank you that we get to be in the one body of Christ, that you have called us from darkness. You've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. We were once darkness, but we are now light, as your scriptures say. So, Father, we thank you so much. And we praise your name as we, at this moment, participate in communion. As we take the blood and the body. What you gave to the disciples in this last time for us to carry out until you return to come get us. We thank you, Father, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.